This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair utilizes a molecule called hypochlorous acid. When applied to the skin, the molecule works by mimicking the natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing of a wound. Just a quick spray or dab can help with a wide range of issues ranging from cuts, scrapes, sunburns, rashes, including stubborn diaper rashes. I discovered Active Skin Repair Baby when my daughter had wicked diaper rashes and it's now part of our diaper rash routine. Apply and then use your balm or ointment of choice. With over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews, you now have one simple solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit ActiveSkinRepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your first order by using code PEDSDOC. That's 20% off your order by using code P-E-D-S-D-O-C. Welcome to this week's episode. I am so excited because I have a guest who I've been trying to get on the podcast for so long. She is an amazing infectious disease epidemiologist and science communication lead at the COVID Tracking Project. She's on Instagram as Jessica Malati Rivera. Many of my followers, many of my listeners might already be following her. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited. I discovered your account, obviously, in the middle of this pandemic. And I was talking to other people how I'm just so excited that scientists and nerds and every one of us <laughs> in the medical field and science field is really taking social media by storm by, you know, crushing all of this misinformation, spreading accurate information. It's just so great to see you thrive on social media and share your knowledge with the world. So thank you. Thank you. It's it's a very surreal experience and not at all what I expected when I started posting some stories almost a year ago to the date last year. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're recording this on March 10th and then the pandemic was officially declared on the 11th. So yeah, year anniversary. And as many of you expected, we're going to be talking about COVID. I had Jessica come on because I wanted to gear the conversation more towards pediatrics and children, just because um, I am a pediatric podcast. And we also feel, and I personally feel too, that there's just not as much guidance for children. Um, obviously the vaccine is right now for adults, which makes sense, older adults, but children are on the docket to get the vaccine, hopefully, eventually. And so we're going to be talking a little bit more about children and just what what Jessica does as an epidemiologist. So tell me more about what you do in your profession and the COVID tracking project and how you got involved in it. Yeah, so I got my master's degree over 10 years ago in emerging infectious diseases. And while I was at Georgetown studying, I was also working at Georgetown, working at the Division for Integrated Biodefense. And we were essentially tracking emerging trends in epidemics that were potential pandemics. So our team actually identified the emergence of the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. And we were looking for indicators and warnings in everything from infrastructure to kind of news headlines about what could potentially be a disruptive health event. Everybody who kind of is in this kind of niche space in infectious disease research knew that a pandemic was kind of a matter of time. It was never a matter of 
um, if, it was always going to be when. So when I first got the notifications from this infectious disease society that I'm a part of in December of 2019, I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if it'll be kind of like SARS-1. And so I kind of watched it, kind of continued with my normal life, but peeking every now and then on Twitter at my old professors and whatnot, and realized very soon in, in March that think this was going to be quite destabilizing. And so in the time between graduate school and when the pandemic hit, I'd been doing all kinds of research on tracking infectious disease outbreaks, mostly on vaccine preventable illnesses and vaccine education. And shortly after the pandemic was declared, I actually just directly reached out to the COVID tracking project because of that experience, because I've been working on biosurveillance and tracking epidemics and pandemics and quickly got thrown into literally the best work of my entire career, the most meaningful, the most profound with some of the best humans I could possibly imagine. So it's it's been a very uh, kind of bittersweet week as we wrapped up data collection. We still have a lot of analysis to do, but since pretty early on in the pandemic, I've worked with a lot of the people there who are incredible, mostly volunteers. And it's this amalgamation of such renaissance backgrounds, right? There's epidemiologists, there's data scientists, there's journalists, there's people who are just interested in numbers and trends. And through that amazing combination, we've been able to kind of function as the most reliable source for COVID-19 data in the US. And that's what's so great. I'm going to be attaching the link to the COVID tracking project website, as well as your Instagram handle, because between the two, there's just so much information that you're able to give. And some people like just someone to tell them what to do, but other people like to see data and how things are decided on by data. I mean, I recently uploaded something that the CDC, it was a really great article, but it wasn't what's on the mainstream media, right? The mainstream media says, oh, here's the updates. And people are like, well, where do they get this from? And I went on the CDC website and I saw like, the backing, the scientific backing on why they came up with these recommendations. And I shared it because websites like yours and accounts like yours are so important to have people understand that there is a method usually to this madness. It's not like we're throwing it out of midair. Obviously, we still don't know so much about you know, everything, especially at the beginning, but there is a reason and your job obviously is so useful and so great in this past year. And I'm so glad that you are that resource. So what has been the most rewarding part? You've mentioned that you get to work with such great people. Is there anything else that's been so rewarding about this project? Yeah, I think it's, you know, knowing the fact that our information is just so trusted, right? And it's uh, been the backbone for even the Biden-Harris administration and in their development Mm -hmm. of a lot of kind of COVID-19 policies moving forward as they try to kind of help us end this pandemic. I think personally, I've just loved seeing this insatiable desire kind of emerge with people in things like epidemiology and things like data. And uh, I've kind of always, I mean, I've been a science communicator for so long, and I've always felt strongly that increasing science literacy and data literacy doesn't require a lot of things that people often use, like sarcasm and name calling and even dumbing things down. I actually don't think that that's really fair. I think that we can elevate people, elevate people's literacy and comprehension of these things by just explaining it through a really meaningful way. There's definitely a science to science communication. And when I've seen these like moments of light bulbs turning on and people realizing that, oh, this makes sense now, and then feeling like fear turns into empowerment to make informed choices about things like vaccines, for instance, I will never get all, get over the DMs that I get literally daily of, I was so fearful of this vaccine. And now I feel very confident in its safety and efficacy, everything from the flu vaccine to the COVID-19 vaccine mm-hmm. to even understanding kind of the nuance behind herd immunity and what it means and what it means to be kind of like altruistic in our decisions to achieve herd immunity and, and, you know, getting past this pandemic. So uh, there's just so many wonderful moments that I've had with people who I've never met, 
um, mostly through social media, who are looking at this data and instead of feeling overwhelmed, they feel informed. Yeah, and that you know that movement from fear to empowerment. That's exactly what I think most of us on social media, especially whether you're a doctor or a science educator, I mean, it's just so important that we share all this accurate information. And like I said earlier, a lot of this information we're still learning about too, right? Like, I mean, you spend every day learning about all the things that we're learning about this virus and transmission and well, if we open this and do this, but it's just so nice to give it in such a way that people can digest it. And I agree with you. We don't need to dumb down. Yeah. Like I actually feel that same way when I'm a pediatrician and talking to moms and dads and caregivers in my office. I just need to explain it to you. I don't need to put it in yeah. some weird language you don't understand. But if I say you have X, Y, and Z, let me explain to you why we say that, what it means. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, I had you come on because I wanted to gear this conversation towards children because I'm the Pete's Doc Talk podcast. And I know we may not know all the answers and I, I a lot of it may be assumptions and just educated guessing. But when do you foresee kids starting to receive the vaccination given the current rate of vaccinations? I mean, three companies are now on the market. I believe there's one more coming in the United States, um, hopefully soon. But when do you foresee kids starting to get this? Yeah. I mean, I'll start by saying that I too am very interested in this topic because I'm a parent. I have two kids, four and two mm -hmm. and a half. And, uh, you know, as I, there's no kind of omission of this information, it's just that we're based on the limited data, right? But at, based on the data that we have right now and, and, and following kind of the de-escalation process that they're doing for the vaccine trials, it seems likely that kids that are younger than 12 will not have access to the vaccine in 2021. seems much more likely that it'll be like late spring of 2022, just based on the data and how fast the trials are going. I know that they are working very hard on the age group of 12 to 17 currently right now. I feel pretty confident that that age group might be covered come the fall, maybe even prior to the school season. But I guess the comfort in that is knowing that because kids are not at the highest risk, we can kind of afford that time for lack of better terms. And I think that as we continue to vaccinate in mass, the adults and those younger or older pediatric population, we can effectively protect younger kids by kind of creating more dead ends for the virus. And, and kind of holding them over until next year. Yeah, and that's what I think a lot of my followers were having difficulty understanding because they are so focused on, well, what my child's not being protected. I'm like, but if you can protect more people, so if more adults get the vaccine that, can, that are eligible to get it, if the older children get it, we're going to, like you said, squash that virus and create dead ends so that we hopefully don't bring it home to our younger children who are not able to get it. I mean, that's the purpose of vaccination, right? I mean, yeah, that's why precisely. Yeah, I, mean, I think people forget that, that that's why we vaccinate the Tdap and all the other vaccines we give our little yes. infants in that we're trying to protect that child who may be too young or ineligible to get it yep. because they have a medical condition. This is the purpose of vaccination. So I know we both agree that if you can get the vaccine, and are eligible to get it, you should try to get it because it's going to really help everyone. Absolutely. Um, I, I think Absolutely. this is so important. You know, I, yeah, I didn't mention that obviously you're a mother and are your children at home right now or are they in, yeah, they're home with you, right? Not, yeah, they're home full time and they've been home full time since March. Uh, you know, our school in San Francisco, where we were before we kind of relocated for the pandemic stayed open and they were successful and have not having any outbreaks, but I was just kind of I would, yeah. I was choosing to err on the side of caution and just knowing that uh, we had the ability to keep them at home. And this was just such a unique time for all of us to be at home. I, it has come with many challenges, believe me. I mean, I'm working way more than full time. My husband has a very demanding job, but um, we feel like this has just been the right move, at least for this last year. We are eager to get them back into yeah. school, knowing that people are getting vaccinated and teachers especially are being prioritized. But yeah, they've 
they've been home for a year and counting. Yeah, and I know you were on the cover of Parents Magazine, right? Talking yeah. about that, that was so awesome. I'm actually gonna try to see if I can link that because I, again, I, I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity and I know you don't feel that way. <laughs> I know you don't. We talked about that. I get it. And I, I appreciate you. And that's why I love you even more because you're totally not a celebrity man, like mine, but you are a celebrity to me. So that and to so many of my followers. And it's not. And when I say celebrity, as you know, it means that we just value your opinion so much. And it's just so nice to see you thrive in an area that you're so knowledgeable at. And that's what I love as a fellow person in healthcare. You know, I love seeing people who are educated, spreading their education with the world. So again, thank you so much for that personal, you know, experience with your ch children and then also um, your professional expertise. I don't know about you, but warmer, sunnier days mean more time outside, more activities with the family, and less time to think about what to eat. Fuel up for the summer with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals. Every meal is fresh, never frozen, dietitian approved, and is easy to warm up. I dream of their spicy jalapeno lime cheddar chicken daily. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Factor meals feel like a treat when I'm in mom boss mode, working from home, or taking care of the kids with restaurant-style meals with premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I have the perfect gift for Father's Day, Melon Premium Headwear. These are the best hats and worth every penny. Check all their five-star reviews if you don't believe me. Without a doubt, the most durable and comfy hats you can find. My husband is hat obsessed, but he's been wearing the same old beat-up hat that was losing its spark in heat and sweat. We got some melon headwear and now he just can't get enough. Melon hats are built to last five times longer than any other hat. And my favorite part... No more gross hat smell. With natural antimicrobial properties, sweat doesn't break down the hat. No sweat stains and no smell. And if you need to wash it, they come right back to life and look brand new. They offer three different size options to fit everyone's head. Our favorite is the legend hat. My husband wore it to an outdoor party and he got tons of compliments. Use code PEDSTOCK at checkout for 30% off your order. If you're trying to figure out a Father's Day gift, trust me, this is exactly what they want. Go to melin.com and use code PEDSDOC at checkout for 30% off. Melon rarely offers discounts, so don't miss this opportunity. Now, the other question I've been getting asked was the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, for example, they did not initially have um, studies in pregnant women, but it was open to pregnant women and yep. lactating people um, to talk to their provider and see if they would like to get it. Do you envision that maybe happening for the children who are under 12? Like just say they approve it for 12 to 17. Do you think it's gonna be like an optional thing that, hey, if you're under 12 and you talk to your pediatrician, it's a possibility or it just depends? I think it would be too speculative to say anything confirming right now. I think if anything, we're going to have to see the yeah. data, right? I mean, we've been saying that from the very beginning. Um, you know, pregnant people were excluded from the trials from the beginning, but there were pregnancies reported in every single one of the trials because pregnancies happen. Now we're seeing pregnant people enrolled in trials as well as uh, studies involving lactating women to see kind of the effect of the vaccine post and, and its effect on breast milk. Sorry, that's my kid yelling in the background. Oh, totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, 
You know, I think that if the data is compelling, um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of recommendations they make for younger populations because they are actually going to be enrolling for six to nine and then potentially under six. I even saw mention that they're doing infant enrollment in some places. I haven't seen any confirmation of that yet, but um, they may Mm. just wait for that data uh, again, because they are not the most acutely at risk for those severe outcomes. So knowing that children are not acutely at risk, and we can kind of clarify that because I think there is a miscommunication that sometimes happen about like what risk means and what we mean by that, but knowing that they're not at risk for severe disease compared to like, um, obviously our 65 year old of, um, grandparents, people with maybe yeah. medical conditions. Do you think it's important that we get these kids vaccinated? Like, do you think there we need to vaccinate children to get to herd immunity? Or is that something that if we vaccinate enough adults, we may not need to? Absolutely. I mean, when we look, when we talk about population uh, coverage, we're talking north of 70%, right? Mm-hmm. There are, we have to include the pediatric population to to have that. There, I think that's about twenty five percent of the population is there are minors, and so they are included in that percentage. And I think that because of that percentage, they need to be part of the equation. I do think that when it comes to vaccinating kids, I want people to understand too, when we say acutely at risk, it's not that they are at zero risk. It's not that there haven't been cases of severe COVID or Mm -hmm. MISC-C with pediatric cases or even deaths. There have been deaths in every age group, but we're talking about the overwhelming kind of morbidity and mortality in each age group. It doesn't present the same way in younger kids, but like we were mentioning earlier, we can effectively protect them by having everybody around them vaccinated until they're eligible based on the data to get that vaccine themselves. So I I do think it's going to be important to vaccinate younger kids. There's also this larger conversation of will this virus become endemic, kind of like how H1N1 did. It's also possible. It's also possible that we kind of through herd immunity as, as our bodies become mm-hmm. stronger and more immune, it becomes less of a nuisance. It becomes less disruptive to our public health. Would you get the vaccine for your children if it gets approved for them? If the vaccine is approved, then I trust that that means the vaccine is safe and effective for that age group in which it was tested. And so therefore, yes, if that is available to the ki- to my kids based on their age, I will get them vaccinated for sure. Yeah, same with me. And I think that's another thing that people are getting confused about when I ask on polls, you know, would you get your child vaccinated? It's the understanding that it would be approved, whether it's yep. emergency use authorization or whatever it is. I I agree with that. I mean, and we're so lucky right now that so many people have gotten vaccinated in the adult world to see the benefits of the vaccine. And also people are reporting side effects to be safe. We are seeing that it is a safe vaccine overall. And that is so great to hear. You agree that it is important that we test differently in children, correct? In terms of we need these vaccine trials. Why do you think it's important that we need to test differently, you know, that we need to test in children also? Yeah, I mean, because our bodies are different, right? Kids, we need to understand kind of what effects it has on different populations. And, you know, we include different ages in clinical trials so that we can understand kind of on average of a healthy person in this age group, they have these types of immune responses, they have these types of adverse events, they have this kind of proclivity to long lasting immunity. That's, that's how you get that rich data so that we know that it is, you know, safe in this population. There's 
never kind of a single anecdote that can solve all the problems for all the people, right? The more specific we can get in our trial designs, the better data, uh, the more reliable data there is. And I know you also mentioned something about whether it's EUA or approval. I feel like there's also this kind of, and this is partially due to the way that this has been communicated publicly. Um, an EUA is not a subpar of approval, right? An EUA still requires a very rigorous submission, very rigorous data, and a very rigorous analysis of that data. In fact, you know, none of the companies were even allowed to submit for an EUA application until they had eight weeks post-vaccination data, because that's typically the window in which an adverse event would be reported. And I, and I feel like there's still this misconception that an EUA adds to whatever kind of haste or rush that people are perceiving, but there was just absolutely no shortcuts and there were no kind of, you know, uh, compromises made in the quality of this data. I have every bit of confidence that these will have full approval. Authorization is precisely that we're in a public health emergency. We need to get things out. Yeah, that. thank you. Because I feel like that happened a lot when it got approved. And my husband and I were lucky enough to get it back in January, um, soon after the emergency use authorization. And people on my social media were like, it's too soon. You don't yeah. know enough about it. And I'm like, I think people forget the process that goes into yeah. even getting getting it to become emergency use. And I mean, we both know that a lot of the vaccine vaccination, this whole pandemic has been politicized in the United States. Yeah. So many people felt like it was rushed on a political agenda. I mean, there was a lot of naysaying. And I, you know, I'm so grateful me and my husband were able to get it. Uh, this was very exciting. And obviously now our grand the grandparents and older people are getting it. And eventually, I think in Alaska, they're now allowing 16 plus to get it. I mean, this is it's all so exciting uh, that people yeah. are actually starting to get this. So I agree. I think there's just so much unknown and just people didn't know because of how it's portrayed in the media. And also just, you know, they're not getting it from the right places. Pandemic parenting has been rough. As parents, we take on a large mental load. Have you ever thought about what may be interfering with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals and true happiness as a parent? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is professional and confidential counseling done securely online. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available and services are available worldwide. I want you to start living a happier life today for you and your family. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash peds. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash peds. Therapy helps. It's helped me and I know it can help you. And with BetterHelp, you're one step closer to taking charge of your mental health. I, I want to ask a personal, yeah. I guess, a personal professional question. Being on social media and doing what you do, what has been some frustrations or I guess your biggest pet peeve in this whole pandemic being, I mean, how give long me, do you give have? Me however much. I'll tell you when we need to stop. But I would love to hear, it's important I think people know this. Like, what are some things that you hear or you see that you're like, oh my gosh, like if I hear this one more time, I'm just going to, you know, I can't handle it. Like knowing what you know, you are obviously very educated in the sphere. I would love to hear what you think. You know, social media is a double-edged sword. Social media has proven to be such an incredible resource for vaccine education and, uh, you know, science communication. It's also the breeding ground for so many misinformation campaigns and so much conspiracy. And so it just, you kind of feel like you take 
five steps forward and then 50 steps back based on kind of the constant manipulation of data, the constant misinterpretation of data, and the just kind of like gravitas of some people who speak with such authority who are outside of their domain of expertise. Um, I will say the thing that has been the hardest has been the vitriol and the like absolute um, lack of care for people who are working in this field. Um, I'll be more specific and say that uh, I get accused of being mm-hmm. a pharma shill every single day. I've never received a single dollar, not one, from a single mm-hmm. pharmaceutical company, from any of the manufacturers. I have every single hour that I've put on social media has been out of my own free time. And I uh, feel very strongly about it. And that's why I do it. And people get really ugly when it comes to things related to pediatrics, especially when you are encouraging things like vaccination based on data. I'm literally not telling anybody to do anything. I am providing the information so people can make informed Mm -hmm. choices. And yet I have been attacked a number of times uh, in very kind of gruesome ways done like scrolling down to pictures of my children, calling them vaccine injured, telling me I'm a terrible mom that I should get investigated for poisoning my kid. And, you know, they even like went so far as to, you know, report me as misinformation, which didn't go anywhere, but it, it just gets so ugly really fast. And I think people don't see the humanity of people in healthcare and people who are in science who are legitimately trying to do this because they care and it's not for profit. And I feel like if you actually look and there, you know, always the claim to like, Oh, yeah. follow the money. Well, really, if you actually follow the money on the other side, they're usually selling something. And it's usually something that is a little snake oil like, right? I don't ever feel like I have t- thick skin. And I feel like th- people think that I do. I'm actually extremely sensitive. I get my feelings hurt. And social media requires thicker skin than I have. And I think that that is something I've kind of forced myself to kind of develop yeah. in order to kind of maintain the kind of cadence that I've developed for posting online. But it's painful sometimes. It is. No, I mean, the reality is, yes, people on the outside, and I'll be honest, even before I got on social media, I would look at some influencers, not in the medical space, but just other influencers, and they would lament about like some things that were happening. And I was like, oh man, like that sucks. Like I would watch them like, be upset about the negative messages they get and I'm like that must suck but like how much can they get like there can't be that much like people are not that mean I got on social media and I realized how mean people are and just really take it personally to your child and that's just to me the worst I mean you can say something about me but when you start to talk about my son or you're obviously you're the worst you feel so much that mama bear like excuse me you don't even know me it really really hurts and you know like you said about that thick skin I mean we are givers right we are going on this platform you, you included, obviously, you just mentioned without any financial agenda, right? There's no, we're spending our free time. I mean, you probably spend upwards of maybe 15 hours on social media a week. Yeah. Like, it's a lot of time that you're not getting paid for and you're doing it because you love it. And people don't get that. Like, people don't get that when you're doing that, you're a giver in mm-hmm. nature. And when you're a giver, there is some people pleasing that can come with that. And with that comes, it's really hard to keep a thick skin. I agree with you. My husband tries, we always talk about it when I get that hate messages and all that. I'm like, yep. oh my gosh. And it's really hard to to be a giver in a public space and not yeah. put that wall up because you are a loving human being and you want to share all the things you want to do to keep your, your kids safe, keep other people's kids safe. And when they're saying you're injuring your child or you're doing this and how could you and really trying to drag you into the ground, even though you know they're not right, because I feel the same, even though you know, it hurts. Oh, for sure. It hurts a lot. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it could be like objectively right. laughable what they're actually saying or accusing me of. To feel so misunderstood and misrepresented, it, it hurts. And I think that, you know, I'm very eager to see these social media platforms put their money where their mouth is when it comes to being committed to kind of cleaning up the misinformation. I've seen some good steps, but I feel like you take one down and 10 more come up. And so I feel like the work is endless. I'm not quitting anytime soon. I'll be doing this for the foreseeable future because people want it and I enjoy giving it. But, you know, this is going to be a uh, very, very long process of kind of building trust in science, rebuilding trust in uh, scientists. Um, I think some of that distrust is legitimate in cases of, you know, communities of color who have had some trauma in the background. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to kind of prevent the next pandemic and also infodemic because those two things just come hand in hand. And unfortunately, we've seen that with literally every single infectious disease outbreak. And now that it's common knowledge, people Mm -hmm. understand that this happens. It's not just, you know, people in my space who study the trends of these kinds of outbreaks. Um, I'm hoping that more people are on guard to know that, you know, there are a lot of people out there trying to hijack the messaging, trying to cause more fear, distract you from uh, the actual science and try to like, you know, tell you there are other solutions when there aren't. Yeah. And it's so frustrating for us. And then I can only imagine all the people who are not science-based, right? They're trying to figure out, well, who do I believe? Like I have these, this person who has 1.5 million followers that are telling me to drink celery juice to avoid COVID, or I have this person who has X amount of followers, like who do I believe? And it's sad. I mean, it's sad and it's scary because we know that, you know, yes, we can put on that thick skin when someone says you injured your child with vaccines because we know that's not true. But what about my moms or parents who are like, well, did I? Because someone said this and someone said this. And I'm I know you are doing the same. Like I literally spend so much of my time trying to reduce that anxiety that social media has created. So it's like I'm using the same weapon that is also injuring other people yeah. in other ways like I'm it's hard it's it's a tough space and I, I so appreciate you talking about that because um I think it's an important thing that people need to understand for people who are trying to educate the world on yeah. science related to yeah. um, healthcare topics are you tired of searching google and ending up in a rabbit hole at 2 a.m thinking that you're ruining your kid stop and visit pedsdoctalk.com. My website is your new Google with a search feature to search all content that I have that is free or available by purchase. And let me tell you, there are a lot of free goodies there, like free printable PDFs for how to handle a choking incident to milestones to monitor in your kid. My website provides information regarding the health and development of your child, including parenting and sleep. My goal is that you stop those middle-of-the-night searches that lead you nowhere but into the land of anxiety. My goal is to guide you to be the confident and calm parent I know that you are. Make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and use the magnifying glass to search. Want even more? Make sure to sign up for our newsletter by visiting pedsdoctalk.com newsletter, where you can get the latest and greatest in child health news and parenting tips delivered directly to your inbox. That's pedsdoctalk.com newsletter. Hey. Are you loving the show? You're halfway through, so I hope that you are. This is a reminder that if you love the show, appreciate our guests, and want to continue to hear amazing conversations, to leave those reviews and ratings. Reviews and ratings are how a podcast continues to grow and reach more people. And the more people we reach, the bigger we can get, and the more amazing free content we can provide for you. Yes, you may hear some ads like this one, but my goal is to be able to provide free and accessible health, development, and parenting content to you via the show. Leave a review and rating and update reviews after you hear a powerful episode. Thank you for tuning in. 
I appreciate this so much, Jessica. The last question I have is about the recent CDC guidelines. So obviously we're recording this on March 10th. So a couple of days ago, they announced that a vaccinated individual can now be around other vaccinated individuals. But how would you interpret that for children? Yeah. So I think that we need to be very clear about what they're saying and what they're not saying. So what they're saying is that vaccinated people, fully vaccinated, meaning two weeks after your final dose. So if that's J&J, that's after your in single dose. If it's after Pfizer and Moderna, it's two weeks after your second dose. That's, that, that's when you are fully vaccinated. Those people can hang out with other fully vaccinated people in private settings without masks or distancing. And that is a very specific kind of combination of variables. They also said that vaccinated people could potentially hang out in a, with another single household if they are unvaccinated without a mask, assuming that the people there are of low risk. I personally err on the side of caution almost always. I don't feel comfortable yet as an individual or even to make a public health recommendation that there should be intermingling of vaccinated, unvaccinated without masks. But they're saying that you kind of have to do a risk assessment based on who there is at the greatest risk. And that should be the determining factor for people who are in that gathering. Mm -hmm. um, they also said that if you uh, are vaccinated, you don't have to worry about the same kind of quarantine and isolation protocols. But what was not included and what was very obvious to parents and to caregivers was that children weren't included in this conversation. That's partially because the vaccines right now are only approved for at least Pfizer is for 16 and over and kids are not eligible for vaccination yet. So what does that mean for families getting together? This is how I'm looking at it. Uh, because kids, again, are not at the highest risk of these severe outcomes. I think what they're saying in so many words and not so many words is that vaccinated households could get together without masks and uh, distancing while also understanding the fact that what is the risk exposure for your kids? Are your kids in school? And if they're not in school, and then you kind of make that assessment from there, right? So my kids are at home with us. If we're going to hang out with another household mm -hmm. where their kids are at home with them, I'm going to feel 100% fine with all of us hanging out privately without masks and distancing, because I'm not worried about that. If my kids who are at home with me are going to hang out with other kids who are in a school, kind of back to business situation yeah. at school, then I'm going to say the kids should probably wear masks. And I think that is a very fair thing to say because those kids have to be considered as being ex potentially exposed. I mean, I, I know that even though the risk of it, transmission from kids is not high, it's not zero. And I personally know people who have gotten COVID because their kids brought it home from school. So it is possible. Um, so I think it, it's it's based on your vaccination status and based on your exposure risk. And you have to factor yes. in schooling and other group activities that the kids have to make that assessment of whether or not the kids can hang out unmasked and without distancing. Beautifully put. I am so excited that you mentioned that because when I put a post up, I talked about, yes, the vaccination. And then I had to do a whole clarification because I wanted to make sure people understood. And I'm, I didn't have time because it was like 11 at night. And I was like, I need to get on my stories and make sure people understand that you are in there, your children, if there's multiple children getting together, that there is risk there. And I agree with that completely as a pediatrician. Obviously, I would because you're more of an expert at this, but that makes total sense. I mean, you have to assess the risk here. You got to understand that there are germs. And again, when I say that children are not low risk for severe disease, I still don't want them to get sick. I mean, we're trying to reduce them getting sick in the first place, but we understand that if there is an exposure, if they were to get COVID, data shows that yes, there is a higher chance of 
positive outcomes in children. But like Jessica said, we don't want to expose everyone. And, you know, they have a whole party together with like 30 people should not be happening at all. That's obviously something we have to be very clear about. It's one other household. And just say there's two kids in each household, both all parents are vaccinated, they mingle, there's germs mingling, those germs can go somewhere else. So we're just trying to be cautious until we know way more and until more kids can start to get vaccinated too. And I, I appreciate that too. Um, I completely agree with that. And I think that's really reasonable. But they left that out. And, you know, pediatricians everywhere and parents everywhere, you're right, we're like, well, excuse me, like, what's what about what about all these kids that might be getting together then, you know, but I agree with that. And I appreciate you saying that because I'm just the timing of this call is so great, because I was curious what your thoughts were on that, you know, and the fact that you said it beautifully, that you're assessing the risk of your children, the fact that they're not around other children, and also your friend's family that would do the same, that is low risk. Now, if you have a friend, a child who's in school and does classes and does all this other stuff, risk creeps up. So any human contact increases risk. So if your child is in contact with a lot of other humans, you need to have a conversation with that parent of that other family saying, what are you comfortable with? Um, yeah. There is a risk here, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's important. Well, and I think too, a lot of people might say, well, my kid is wearing masks at school and they practice all these things. Well, yes, but it's not zero risk, right? The lower yes. people you are around, the lower your risk is. And so you want to think about this, especially when you're talking about these mixed households of unvaccinated and vaccinated. That's why I think everybody should still kind of err on the side of caution there. And I think, you know, kids to kids are another population we need to consider. If, you know, people People are very concerned about what this means for kids. Well, let's think about what the risk is for kids and their exposure levels for kids and make that choice for them based on their environments. And I think it's not going to be long for, uh, you know, most educators and administrators in, in school settings to be vaccinated. I think that when that happens, it's going to also dramatically reduce the risk of being in school. Um, once all the adults kind of around them are mm -hmm. vaccinated, I think that the, these policies, these guidelines are going to change based on the data. And it's probably going to be maybe this summer or fall when we can start to see before these kids can get vaccinated that, you know, you can start having even more combinations of households without masks and without distancing, because most of the adults are vaccinated. Oh, it feels very hopeful. Are you feeling hopeful for the first time this year? I feel like 2021 hit and I'm like this, I feel I feel much better with just the way yeah. the vaccines being rolled out. I mean, just in many different things, I do feel a light. Obviously, we still have so much work to do, everyone, right? We still have to do all the stuff that we were doing. But it does feel optimistic, like the most optimism yeah. I've had in this whole pandemic. Yeah, I do. And I, I mean, I've always erred on the side of cautious optimism. Mm -hmm. And I definitely feel like the end is in sight. I do think we are at this really critical point in the pandemic, though, where it is a race between the variants and the vaccines. And I, it's very disheartening to see some jurisdictions kind of like see the finish line and then just like start walking and not finishing well in this mm -hmm. race when we really... Uh, cannot lose our stamina here. Wearing masks is the bare minimum. It, it should not be something that we should make yeah. any policies about removing these mandates. I understand if you want to make modifications to capacity limits and to occupancy stuff, like I get that. You can have that conversation in a tiered strategic way. But if we don't get ahead of the variants by boosting our daily vaccine rates, um, we we are at risk of having a fourth surge. And I don't want that to happen. And I, and I do feel confident, especially now that J&J is in the pipeline, um, that we can start vaccinating kind of 3 million plus a day. If we start doing that, I really think that the next four to six weeks are going to tell us what the next four to six months are going to be like. And I'm hopeful that, you know, because our increase in vaccinations, we will essentially outpace the variants if we can. That's great. Oh, I hope so. I mean, you're right, though. I mean, the mask mandates being dropped in many countries, and it's so frustrating. And I, I live in Florida, where right now, 
we have mask mandates indoors in terms of grocery stores and any indoor establishments, right? If you're walking down the street, you don't need a mask. That's the rule right now in Florida. But I am afraid that they're going to get rid of those mask mandates in those grocery stores and in these other places where I live in Florida um, because I'm watching other places. But thankfully, our mayor is really good um, that we haven't been, you know, listening to our governor so much. So I guess that's okay. Um, but that's beyond the point. But no, this is really important. I think this is so great to hear um, the cautious optimism. I know that that phrase you've mentioned many times on your social media, and it's so important that we keep that with every different change that's made with the CDC, remembering to wear that mask is the bare minimum. And it's so easy. I mean, it's I so actually easy. like it. I'm like so used to it. I'm like, oh, here's my mask. Like it keeps my nose yeah. warm. It's like, it's fine. Like it's part of my life. And people have said like, I probably will wear my, wear my mask after this pandemic is done and like flu. Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm actually really happy because as a pediatrician, I've always wanted to wear masks in my visits for sick visits, but I've been told, you know, it scares kids. And I'm like, now we're normalizing masks. <laughs> like, yeah, like, it's great because it really does help. Yeah, people really want to like kind of be done with masks, but I I love seeing kind of this adoption in our individual public beho- public health behavior that you know, come flu season, if you're actually sick with flu or actually sick with something else or have a cough and you have to travel, um, that to me seems like a really good courtesy to do for your fellow Americans, you know, to just be mindful yeah. of your health and to prevent uh, potentially being a risk to others. I think that that is something that we will consider for the rest of our lives, at least. I will always have some you know, stash of surgical masks on the ready, just in case. Yeah. And I, I was talking to um, a friend earlier, and we were talking about how if we could just do all the basic principles that we've learned this year in the pandemic, right, better hand washing, staying home when we're sick, yes, you know, keeping our kids out of school, if they're sick, if we can just continue to do that, which is what we learned in this pandemic to do, we could really reduce the spread of just random other viruses too, right? I know. Yeah. And it's not asking a lot, you can still socialize after this pandemic is over, right? But I'm talking like, how to reduce the spread of these illnesses and just really get back to allowing our kids to be in school without having to stay home because everyone's getting some virus. Like these are just basic principles. And I agree with the mask. Like it helps. It's part of that puzzle piece of just getting protection, right? Masking, distancing. It's all stuff we do together. The vaccine, wearing a mask on top of the vaccine is even more protection. So this is all stuff that, um, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be, well, I do this and it's all done. It's going to be a gradual removal of all of these things, right? It's not going to be like one day life is back to normal. It's stepwise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, you know, this has been such an amazing opportunity to teach my kids about how to care for others. Um, You know, my daughter is four and she will remind us when we're walking out, she's like, we need to wear masks so that other people don't get sick. And I, I love that that has become a part of her understanding. Yeah. I love that it's not fear. I love that she doesn't kind of shudder when she sees people. She's mindful of the fact that we're trying to care for other people. And, you know, I, I know that there are, this also comes with a lot of costs uh, emotionally and mentally for kids and for adults. We have all experienced uh, at various stages of this pandemic, a very kind of uh, deep emotional impact of this. And I think that that's something we should also consider. I'm not at all trying to sugarcoat this and say it's been just a great learning lesson. Like the pain of this is also yeah. major. And I and I look forward to kind of uh, even the normalizing of talking about how hard it is to have gone through this and how we can even teach our kids that like, this was, a you know, we learned a lot, but it also was very painful. And, and we can move forward from this, uh, hopefully better. 
Yeah. Oh, what a great message. I was going to ask you, what would be your final message? I mean, that's part of it. But is there anything else you wanted to add today for everyone listening? You know, I say this a lot when I'm asked this question, and I believe it wholeheartedly that all of these sacrifices that we've been making, all of these uh, plans that we've had to defer, these celebrations that we've had to postpone, um, they're just, they're not in vain. They have all had meaningful impact on the trends that we are now seeing in the data that cases are dropping, hospitalizations are dropping, deaths are dropping. Um, All of those things are because of individual choices, individual sacrifices, community choices, community sacrifices that have had a collective, collective impact on the kind of improvement that we're seeing. And I think that um, I just want to commend people for making those choices. I want to commend people for those sacrifices, knowing that you may not be able to see what you prevented, but that is kind of the, uh, the point of public health. You don't really see what you don't see because we've stopped it from happening. Yeah. Oh, Jessica, thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking the time today. This was such a great conversation. So helpful for me, as well as I'm sure all my listeners will also agree. Remember everyone to follow her at Jessica Malati Rivera on Instagram. I'm going to attach her handle to my show notes. She shares so much information regarding all of this. I'm sure when more data comes out on the on children, maybe I'll have her back with all the studies. Um, we'll do a live something because I really think um, her information is so important to this world. And thanks again for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I loved it. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, TV. We'll talk to you soon. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.